Welcome to the Money Wise Women Show, brought to you by MoneyMorphosis.com. Are you ready to be inspired to upgrade your financial skills? Listen to feminine leaders sharing practical advice and valuable insights. Shift your money mindset, improve communication skills, and learn financial management tips. Although we do not provide investment advice, you can check out MoneyMorphosis.com. That's Money-M-O-R-P-H-O-S-I-S.com to find simple ways to boost your true wealth. Welcome, this is Crystal Arnold, your hostess of Money Wise Women and founder of Money Morphosis. There is such an incredible opportunity um, now to transform our our society, our economy, and create a culture of caring and greater justice. And and really, there are a lot of women in particular coming into power and, and speaking um, truth about how we can have more equity and economic justice. And uh, one of these women who I heard uh, recently is our guest, Siadam Edmo. And I was uh, just so impressed hearing her story um, as a Native American woman and, and um, the, the kinds of change which she is facilitating both through um, her philanthropy work, her work on bringing uh, more uh, Native American education into our public school system and, and also bringing um, uh, rights into the tribes uh, as as far as uh, um, gender equity and and LGBTQ um, rights and so she'll tell us more about that and uh, just wanted to tell you a little bit about uh, her and uh, and you'll soon see why I've been so impressed by by the power of her voice and her uh, work towards justice in all these areas. Um, so Siadam is uh, Shoshone, Bannock, Nez Perce, and Yakima tribe uh, from those tribes, uh, and she is the MRG's executive director, uh, which is a foundation founded in 1976. Uh, so she really brings this deep experience in community organizing for racial and social justice work, um, which she's done across the nation. She is co-editor of the Tribal Equity Toolkit 3.0, Tribal Resolutions and Codes for Two-Spirit and LGBT Justice in Indian Country and American Indian Identity, Citizenship, Membership, and Blood. So she'll tell us more about that in a little bit. Uh, so prior to serving as executive director of MRG, she served as sovereignty program director at the Western States Center, where she was the coalition convener of tribal history, shared history, which was a Senate bill in Oregon. And this law established uh, and funded teaching of America, of Indian history and sovereignty in K through 12 states across Oregon. So a hallmark of her career has really been this fostering of relationships and collaborations between tribes and organizations uh, that do social, racial, environmental, and economic justice work. 
and uh, she lives in Portland uh, with her husband, children, and parents. And uh, her ancestors are um, from, I don't know if I'll say this right, Sililo, a fishing village along the Columbia River, which is one of the oldest known settlements in, in the West. So a real uh, lineage and, and powerful presence uh, she carries. So uh, welcome. I would love to begin by hearing from you. Uh, what do you find most exciting about the work that you are doing? Hey, um, thanks for having me. Um, let's see, what is most exciting? Uh, I think I, I take, um, with all of my work, I try to approach it with a sense and a context of history and my own um, lived experience um, being the thing that grounds me and how I move forward. And, um, you know, I grew up in a household where my parents uh, lived out their values and I got to, they, I got to see it unfold in front of me as a child. Um, so um, I think I've used a lot of my professional career and platform to um, operationalize in, in my public and civic engagement um, that um, care and love that my family had for community, that my parents had for community um, in, in a very um, real way through, through policy change and shift um, and community organizing and movement building. Mm. Nice. I, I love that strong foundation of, of family and how important that is. Um, I'm curious how, how your work has evolved o over the past um, uh, decades um, and how, um, yeah, what, you know, what, opportunities and challenges uh, you see for creating a more just and equitable economy? Wow. Um, how's my work evolved? You know, um, I think um, I've definitely always grown up with an awareness that um, Scarcity and meritocracy, the myths of scarcity and meritocracy, you know, how we decide who's worth being at a table and how much of a pie we're deserving of in, in terms of wealth. Um, I've always had a sense, um, you know, just kind of a gut feeling in growing up of um, what unfairness means. I think every child as they grow up has that sense of um, what's fair and what's not fair. And um, I think sometimes we're just um, taught differently as we grow older. So um, for me, I like to I like to go back to that time in my life. Um, you know, when I was in kindergarten and um, all the things that I learned about how society either um, taught and affirmed my identity and presence um, in in public and private spheres, um, and what were things that left me uneasy and um, really focused on um, trying to radically, you know, kind of remember how those things felt and then um, shift um, and make a commitment to the world, hopefully being a di very different place for my children as they um, enter into childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Um, so, um, and it's also been a privilege, right, that, uh, 
that I can sit in spaces and talk about ideas um, rather than worry about where my next meal might come from, um, like my father's experience was. So um, I try to enter most of my work with a sense of humility um, for, the, for the generations of folks who have uh, come before and um, shared their thoughts and feelings um, with us. And then um, um, really carry forward in the spirit uh, that, you know, hopefully I'm I'm doing um, all of that time and investment they made in me um, justice through the work that I'm doing now. Um, so I don't know that much of my work has changed changed much in the last couple of decades, but it's definitely taken on different forms. Um, so I think in particular, um, the work around uh, Two-Spirit and LGBT justice, um, that work was really uh, grounded in this idea that tribes um, and treaties, treaties specifically as the supreme law of the land in the United States, um, having a particular power um, to, to leverage for progressive ideas and specifically for LGBT justice. For a really long time, I think um, the LGBT justice movement was trying to think about ideas about how do we bridge the urban-rural divide. This this idea that you know progressive blue you know um, blue spots only existed in in um, big cities, and that everything else was red, and um, you know just this idea that that's what existed. Um, but tribes for a really long time have been, um, have had um, ideas around third and fourth genders, um, around everyone being a part of and having a role in the community. And um, the questions that I, were ask, uh, that I was asking at the time when we were just conceiving of the Tribal Equity Toolkit were like, how can we leverage um, treaties and the, and the power of sovereignty that, that tribes have toward LGBT justice, um, rather than thinking of tribal people and Native Americans as, you know, kind of the smallest racial group and we just want to engage them as that, but how do we really create um, culture shift change in rural communities um, and partner with tribes on um, operationalizing their traditional values of equity um, openness and, and welcoming of two-spirit and LGBT tribal citizens. Mm. So what, what did you learn in, in that process of creating the tribal equity toolkit and, and what has made it successful as something that, from my understanding, has been able to be replicated and used in many different tribes? Um. Let's see. I mean, I think one of the most valuable lessons. So um, when I started the work, I was uh, just um, a, um, a mom and a partner with a high school education. I think at the time I wouldn't have called myself an LGBT justice activist. Um, I wasn't a two-spirit person. Um, I wasn't an attorney. Um, but I knew a lot of people who were those things. And um, what I used my energy to do was to create a space and a table where all of those kinds of folks could come together 
and use all of their power and expertise around one particular vision. And that was, um, you know, looking at tribes as, um, as those progressive rural anchors, those change makers um, who had the ability, because sometimes, um, you know, when we're talking about economics strictly, um, tribes are the biggest employers in their areas, um, in their county, in their, um, you know, three or four county region sometimes. Um, and that's a really powerful position to be in, right? So um, you have um, hundreds or thousands of employees that you have. And, and the idea that you could, from within that, um, you know, that employment, employer-employee structure, um, set expectations around non-discrimination and reframe a conversation, especially in rural communities, um, around, um, you know, you can have a particular belief, but when you work for us and our, and our, our representative, here's how we expect you to behave um, towards all of our guests, towards all of our tribal citizens. Um, so really making the distinction between belief and behavior. Um, so first of all, it was, you know, tribes as, um, as those um, high level employers and progressive rural anchors. Secondly, it was tribes in terms of um, their, uh, their role to um, cultivate forward um, their own future citizenry. So their um, future tribal leaders um, and really embed within the tribal community and operationalize this idea of openness and welcomeness um, through their policy. So it wasn't just an, enough to have people um, be individuals that were open and welcoming, but that um, that our policy and structures really need to 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 be um, operationalized into how we do did business. So, for example, um, you know who we consider to be family, um, who can come with us to the doctor's office, um, who is considered to be in our household. Um, all of those things have. Um, have impacts uh, as on tribal governments as they function as governments. Um, so those were kind of the two ideas that we really used to ground the work. Um, and then um, really just shared it as a group of um, activists, Indian law attorneys and LGBT rights attorneys. Um, so we just developed a process where um, where we all were very, uh, we're operating along the understanding, like, you know, everything, all the discussions were on the table, everything was fair game, um, that we were going to work together and see what we could. So um, our goal was to basically tell the, tell the Indian law attorneys and the LGBT justice and, and rights folks, like, okay, imagine the most radical law you could think uh, a, um, local or state government or federal government could, you know, they're the most radical position, just dream it into existence in, in policy. And that's what we suggested to tribes. And um, the, the, I guess the biggest thing that I realized through the process was that um, when your culture of acceptance is already there and already present, it's really easy to bring policy in line with that. Um, and at the same time, there's also a power to working on shifting the culture of your own tribal community um, 
and writing a policy at the same time. So um, I guess, uh, and it being kind of one of my first organizing, um, you know, first and biggest to this point, organizing experiences, um, that sometimes, you know, the things, even though you don't have the particular training or expertise or whatever, there there is power in, um, in having a radical vision of what you would like the future to be and um, being a part of pulling together resources to um, bring it into existence. Mm. Yes, yes. <laughs> wow, how how many people um are has this toolkit uh reached both people and and tribes? How how many? Well, I think that's kind of hard to say at this point. So, you know, the the first edition um you know, we kind of wrote and um just kind of threw out there into the world and um there was an Indian Country Media Today article about it. Um, Basic Rights Oregon had produced a video that that um, that was produced alongside of it, so I think it got out there. I'm, I'm not sure like how many reads or hits or things like that it got, but um, by the time we hit, and then the second edition, um, you know, it it uh, we moved into a few more sectors, right? So the first edition, um, and I'm a person who very much believes in the evolution of work over time, so. Um, it, uh, the first edition didn't go as deep into transgender gender justice. It didn't go as deep into tribal services like housing and education. So there were some areas left unworked on and um, that left me uneasy, but I was always open to folks who were contacting me saying, hey, you didn't include this and would you consider this? And um, I think it's always good to be open to growing um, in new directions. So that's how the second edition came out. By the time we got to the third edition, um, I think there was such will in Indian country that um, it, and, and um, really I think people just saw the power behind it. Um, I feel like in some ways, like the idea of it um, never was, was really mine in the first place. It just, I feel like it existed somewhere and I just articulated it um, just because folks were so ready to take on the work. So by the time we hit the third edition, um, it was endorsed by the National Congress of American Indians, um, the, the um, Center for Native American Youth at the Aspen Institute, along with, you know, 14 major um, LGBT rights groups across the nation. So I feel like in part that piece, you know, it's obviously an idea whose time had come. And um, I, I just felt really honored to, you know, be a part of it at that point um, because um, it was really just beyond anything I was doing as an individual. Um, <laughs> Just speak to you know how many folks have utilized it or you know um, put it into practice. That's something that I I think we don't really particularly know. And um, I think part of the direction that the work could grow next is um, to to somehow um, pull together a project maybe that um, that does track over time um, who is adopting these. Um, 
these policies and laws. Um, so I think that's um, that's worth some exploration. Uh, you know, a deep partnership between um, LGBT, uh, you know, rights organizations and tracking organizations that that work to kind of you know keep an eye on on these kinds of policies and you know the National Congress of American Indians, the Center for Native American Youth. Um, I could see a really powerful partnership, um, possibly formulating to see, um, you know, how how these are being implemented. But I think more importantly, um, understanding how people's lives have have changed over time, I think, is the more important um, organizing um, piece to this. Um, and that's always, you know, the policy is never the point of many of these initiatives. It's, um, it's shifting the lived experience of, of folks for whom um, this is part of their identity. It's, um, it's um, finally ensuring that our tribal communities and the communities surrounding our tribal communities um, are, are um, deeply um, committed to um, this work in such a way that that they really reflect it in all the work that they do. Mm. Mm. Nice. Wow. Well, thank you so much for for being uh, uh, with such humility, bringing this vision vision forth, and uh, and you have a real skill for having honest. Um, conversations and bringing people together and gathering the resources and allies necessary for some of this uh, culture shifting and, and large scale um, change. And that's what I love about you. Um, I'd love to hear more. Um, you've just come on uh, last year as the uh, executive director of the MRG foundation and um is, uh, was created in Oregon called the Mackenzie River Gathering uh, in 1976, I believe. And just wanted to hear some more about, you know, um, your unique approach to philanthropy and and why you joined this organization. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's kind of a funny story. After uh, after 10 years working in higher education, um, I was about to turn 40, and um, after having done some of the toolkit work, uh, I just woke up one day and said, you know what, um, I want to do organizing, and um, I had had some good and bad experiences in higher education, but uh, I feel like I had gotten to the point where the the the, both the political and the social goals that I had just, um, I think, were, were farther than institutions and almost any institution of higher education wanted to stretch. Um, so uh, I joined the staff of Western State Center um, two weeks uh, or on my or just, I think, after my 40th birthday. And um, it also just happened to be two weeks before um, the 2016 election. So, uh, you know, I, I entered more formally the organizing um, in a really 
in a time period where, um, you know, everyone, every organizer remembers what, what was going on in the 2016 election and um, before and after. And so um, it, it really did a lot to kind of rock and challenge the very ground on which we believed we were organizing on. Um, one where, you know, equity was on the rise and we thought racial justice was on the rise and it was just a matter of time and soon we were a country that was going to be majority minority and all these kinds of conversations. And, you know, we, and the political um, discourse and the public discourse turned into a different direction than a lot of people thought we were going and um, a lot of our ideas about what it meant to be progressive were challenged. Um, it was in that moment that I joined Western States and our staff, um, first as the movement building director and then as the sovereignty director. And um, really it was, uh, it was an amazing opportunity. Um, and um, I was given a lot of autonomy. That's where we printed the third edition of the toolkit and published it in coordination with all the partners. Um, but when this opportunity came up, um, personally, it spoke to me um, because as a person who grew up in poverty, um, I, um, I was really interested in how, in, in ways, um, in, in really radical ways where we bring together folks who had wealth with activists and organizers. Um, so the, the contradiction of what MRG did as a fundraising foundation that was really a nonprofit who only happened to have the word foundation in its name, um, moving money from, from the, and, and decision-making and power from um, those who had and historically had wealth to um, those who were um, at the center of um, so many, and, and uh, I guess who were people um, who were um, the targets of policies, who um, were targets in so many ways, especially since 2016. Um, our communities have been um, scapegoated, et cetera. So those folks were, were having the power and the decision-making power around where MRG's investments were going. So that idea that um, activists could lead and could determine um, where the investments of folks who had wealth were going um, was really interesting to me. Um, so um, here I am uh, and um, I am really enjoying um, the process of kind of looking back at MRG's history um, over over the last 42 years, um, coming up on 43, and um, figuring out, you know, hey, um, where are we going next, and um, what makes sense. Um, but I think that the the contradiction of the model um, was really something that drew me in. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, well put. It's it's definitely an innovative organization and and really appreciate that uh about about the work that uh you're doing there. Um 
so let's let's take a quick break here and when we get back um i'd I'd love to hear about maybe a moment uh that changed that or an experience that changed your perspective on money or wealth in some way um and then we'll talk some more about you know um yeah, just economic justice and equity and uh, how that relates to um, tribal culture and things. Uh, so we'll be back in just a minute. Are you ready to enjoy greater financial freedom? Perhaps you're like Emily, a creative entrepreneur who wants to increase her income to provide for her family. Using the free video training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com. She learned the secrets to accessing hidden resources and creating lasting wealth. Emily learned a persuasive negotiation technique to bring in more money with her top clients. She boosted her credit score and opened new financial doors while reducing expenses. And she took specific steps to strengthen her existing relationships and create a safety net for her business. With the Discover Your True Wealth training, thousands of women have improved their bank balances and secured their family's future. With this free video course, you'll transform beliefs, behaviors, and skills with money. Take charge of your financial situation with the training found at discoveryourtruewealth.com. Welcome back. We are here with Siadam uh, Edmo and uh, just so inspired. Thank you for sharing uh, your journey of, of how you affect change and uh, just really am appreciating uh, both the very cultural shifts um, and, and also the very practical, you know, uh, ways that you've approached uh, both um yeah, policy change uh, and and as well as philanthropy in your uh, new position here at MRG uh, Foundation. So I'm so curious if there is a certain moment or experience that that really changed your perspective on money or wealth. Again, as kind of as as the kid with the other colored lunch ticket, you know, um, my. Um, family was on public assistance for most of my childhood, and um, I have to say, I, I really, I, I think at a particular point, had some, I first I didn't know that life was any different for anybody else. Um, first, I didn't really quite understand that, and um, I had the opportunity to attend um, a private school for both middle school and high school here in Portland. Um, and there are some ways that I didn't didn't notice it, but um, I actually came to really resent, um, you know, not not ha- having the same access to things as some of my classmates did. Um, and uh, it was it wasn't easy, I think, for me to navigate um, that kind of. Um, that kind of school, that kind of context and setting, um, but it did um, it did give me um, relationships with folks that I think I otherwise wouldn't have had um, had I remained in my you know local public school. Um, 
and I think because in part that, you know, I had experienced most of my classmates as just uh, folks just like me, regular folks who struggled with the same math problems, who struggled with the same readings, um, that I didn't have an idea around, I didn't have as strong of an idea around um, meritocracy, that I, that I didn't deserve everything that they had. Um, so um, it made the idea of, um, of, uh, of change possible. Um, so, um, and I really was very intellectually curious. So just, you know, if I didn't know something, you know, most of what I wanted to know about in high school, um, I didn't learn through my classes. Most of what I wanted to know about when I, by the time I went to college, I didn't, um, weren't, weren't being taught in my classes. So um, I had kind of a internal intellectual drive about understanding, um, you know, money and interest and, um, all these things. So the the first thing, you know, right out of high school, I joined AmeriCorps. Um, I saved money. I had an educational award, um, and that's how I got through the first couple years of college. Um, and just, um, you know, really prided myself on being very frugal with how I um, how I used my credit and how I spent money and. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, as an adult, I, I don't know that I did things in a, I mean, I did things in the order that they happened. I don't know what's right or, or wrong. You know, people have this idea of, um, you know, the American dream and purchasing a home. And, you know, the, the reality is it comes when it comes. And, um, but also like, I, I think I really intentionally had to be um, plantful about it. Um, but I want to also talk and, and give credit to um, neighborhood partnerships and um, NAIA Family Center in their role um, creating, you know, our statewide IDA programs here in Oregon, um, because that literally is something that um, without that, I don't, I don't know that I would have been a first-time homebuyer as quickly as I was. And it really was a radical um, that that act of saving and um, purchasing my first home um, did a lot to um, help me shift my mindset about what was possible for me professionally. Um, the stability of being able, and mind you, this only happened um, five years ago that I purchased my first, you know, my first home. So that wasn't that long ago. Um, but the idea that um, and the stability of, of being able to and not to put too fine a point on it, um, it did kind of turn my stomach that as an indigenous woman whose people were originally from what is currently known as Oregon, that I had to work as hard as hard as I did to own a piece of what was originally mine. Like that in and of itself made me feel a little disgusted, but um, the mindset shift that, that happened within me um, after purchasing the home um, uh, really helped um, ground me in um, not feeling as beholden to um, my employer that I worked for at the time, um, really exploring um, some ideas of um, what it meant to do what I really wanted to do instead of um, 
what I needed to do in order to pay bills month to month. Um, so uh, that that was something um, that happened in my life. You know, this the the IDA and you know our our um, local culturally specific providers um, just saying like, hey, home ownership is important. This is important not just to individuals but communities. Um, uh, really. I think helped me along in my, you know, um, journey and curiosity to find out about, um, you know, what it meant to be middle class. Mm. Great. Thanks for sharing that. I've, uh, I did a little research on, on, uh, poverty levels and, and the reservations and, and just wanted to talk, uh, briefly about that in the context of hearing the opportunities and possibilities and kind of dreaming, uh, like you said, what's the biggest outrageous vision we could have for, um, you know, these marginalized, um, indigenous populations here in America, um, because the statistics are pretty, um, sobering, you know, just, just, the um, poverty rate and reservations is often, you know, between 28 and as high as up to 50% in some places, uh, there just frankly aren't a lot of, um, employment opportunities, and uh, often the reservations were, of course, on already marginal pieces of land that may not be have easy access to uh, to employment opportunities. And so there's, you know, this generational poverty and trauma, which um, I I want to, uh, you know, give voice to and and not sugarcoat over that that reality. And yet I'm curious. To hear from you, you know, I I imagine there is such resilience in uh, many people um, who who have lived through this um, situation or grown up on reservations. And um, curious if there's anything you'd like to say about how you see um, what economic potential could could really, um, you know, uh, be created for for uh, Native Americans here in this country? Yeah. Um, so if I can, I will just, that's a great question. And um, I will just plug a book that totally changed my life and my thinking um, about this topic. Well, I guess a couple of ideas. So um, this is just uh, economic um, or just enterprise. Enterprise growth um, for tribal communities uh, is something that I just I'm just really personally passionate about. And the two books um, that are the two authors or thinkers um, that I would like to kind of plug and um, put forward is um, one is Bob Miller, who wrote a book called Reservation Capitalism, and then. Um, uh, another one who I'm uh, I'm sure like many folks who listen to your podcast are familiar with Michael Schumann, um, who can be followed on Twitter at Smallmart. Um, he's just an amazing thinker. Um, so you know, all of settler colonialism uh, has the there is an inextricably like you know tied up intertwined connection between settler colonialism, white supremacy, and capitalism. 
right? Those three things were kind of the argument behind um, conquest and and the legal authority to colonize other places in the world. And um, that's the United States, specifically in, in, in our cases, um, you know, indigenous people from here, the United States, um, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, were all colonized um, as British colonies. And so the same legal principles were used to take indigenous land and resources. Um, now, you know, and, and then what I have to say about the now, so, so first we have that, that kind of common history. Second, um, you know, the now, like so many tribal people, like the, some of the, the biggest Walmart, something that's in, um, in reservation capitalism is the discussion about the biggest Walmart in the world. Um, the biggest Walmart in the world is um, near Gallup, New Mexico, um, just adjacent to the Navajo Reservation. Navajo Nation is um, the largest group of American Indian Alaska Natives in the United States, um, the largest nation within the United States. And it has um, a absolutely deplorable dollar multiplicity um, measure. So, um, and that may not be the correct term, but you all know what I'm talking about. Um, so. Um, the average dollar that's paid out to a Navajo Nation employee leaves the reservation community. There's nearly no multiplicity. It leaves within two weeks. Wow. And that, I know it's astounding. That connection to, you know, my question around this is like, so we're not only are, have our tribal nations fed and led to the um, accumulation of wealth into the hands of a few in the United States, um, the same could be true um, and said for Canada and for other places that were colonized um, as British colonies. But um, so not only have we, has settler colonialism and that idea led to wealth accumulation, but it, um, it also has like um, really sold those of us who are, you know, um, who are uh, tribal people, this idea of what success was like, Success, I mean, our, if you look at, we were absolutely, so I believe that systems are perfectly recreated to get the results that, are, that we're getting, including how education was set up for tribal people, right? We had vocational schools where we were taught to be in service of rich white folks, right? You're taught to be a maid, you're taught to be a welder, you're taught, you're taught that what success meant for you as a tribal person was to serve, um, was to be in service to basically um, help rich white folks get richer or maintain their wealth, right? That's what success was. Go out, get a job. We never thought of ourselves as, um, or never, we're never taught explicitly um, in, um, in the boarding school systems to think of ourselves as people who had power, who had autonomy, who could be entrepreneurs, um, but now I think what in part we need is an entire system change, right? So how do we create the economies that, that call into existence the tribal nations and communities of the future? What, what are those main street businesses? What do they look like in Indian country? Is main street main street? Like, is it, um, is it economies based on our traditional foods? 
operationalizing our traditional values. Right? I think Louie Gong and um, and Eighth Generation up in Seattle um, is a great example of like operationalizing tradition, operationalizing business in a way that honors um, tribes and tribal people. Right. So. Um, they're the only native wool blanket company. And um, I would, you know, for listeners, I would go out there and please, you know, Google eighth generation, but they're absolutely booming, right? Because their business reflects in every decision that Louis and his staff makes um, this uh, very, um, authentic relationship um, and honoring and respect of tribal artists um, in a way that doesn't monetize it um, or reduce it to um, just something that's able to make the most profit. It's, it, the whole business is really set up um, to amplify um, tribal, uh, tribal artists and um, in a way that isn't set up necessarily to maximize profits, right? It's there to serve a function in his own home community. Um, and I really think that's beautiful. So um, I guess my question that, that, you know, in this arena that I'm super curious about is what do our economies look like um, that call into existence tribal communities of the future? Because we cannot live and cannot survive um, in food deserts with, you know, with the dollar only existing in our community for two weeks. It's, it's monetarily extractive. Um, we've already lived through um, an era of intense resource extraction. And um, at this rate, what's left? So I think those are kind of, are going to be the hard questions that we as tribal communities are going to begin to, um, are going to have to begin to, to ask ourselves. Um, but I also think the bigger questions of um, non-native folks, um, what are what are non-native folks' roles in ensuring that tribal communities survive into the future, right? And um, you know, we just saw in Oregon, for example, um, Kanita close, right? The biggest um, when it opened in the '60s, um, it was the the, one of the only native resorts in um, in the West, and now it's closed because the tribe can't afford to operate it. Um, so, what does that say about how we feel? So, it was a native enterprise; it was a tribal enterprise, and and what does that say about about how we um, value tribal enterprises or what we think about them? Um, so anyway, I think there's some bigger questions that I would love to see answered um, in the in the coming years, and I hope to be, you know, at least a fly on the wall for some of those larger conversations about, you know, how are we going to radically shift um, how we think about enterprise and think of ourselves as enterprise builders, right? Where we spend our money, where we get our money, um, as uh, as a part of that, those systems. Um, I think we've been conditioned to think um, that as long as we do good work um, and try to keep our expenses down, that, then that's good. But I, I also think, you know, how, what kind of, are we cultivating an economy that's invested in our survival 
or are we cultivating an economy that's actually invested in our destruction? I mean, environmentally, um, as people, et cetera. So are these companies really acting in our, um, in our best interests? Well said. It's, it's like we're moving from this extractive um, capitalist uh, colonial uh, system into um, a, a sacred reciprocity. I'm, I just finished reading uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by um, Robin Wall Kimmer, uh, which is really beautiful indigenous wisdom and, and um, speaking to this, this sacred reciprocity and how it applies, how the natural living system um, can be reflected in our economies and how there can be a circular flow of resources uh, within communities instead of, of them be leaking out into the Walmarts and, uh, and how we really can uh, Im- empower people to, to have the dignity of being able to create value, to be recognized and acknowledged for their inherent value, for the value of their, you know, native wisdom and skills of, of how to prepare uh, food and blankets and, and grow plants. And there's just so much, um, you know, possibility for, for that kind of regenerative culture and, and practice that I see coming into a more intimate economy where people are feeling like, oh, I really, you know, depend on my neighbors and it's not this, um, you know, uh, where you feel like a disposable commodity often, whether, you know, uh, you've been, you're a maid at someone's house or whether you're, you know, can easily be replaced by something cheaper at Walmart than your handcrafted goods. So I right. feel like there is um, a lot to, to bring greater dignity and create economic opportunity. Um, so when, when we met, uh, I told you a little bit about the work we're doing at Post Growth Institute, and uh, we've created this offers and needs market model, which is quite briefly just a 90-minute process where people get together face-to-face and around small tables, basically share both what they're offering, knowledge, skills, uh, passions, physical resources, uh, as well as what they um need, which is super powerful to for people to be able to concisely and effectively communicate their needs to um, a room full of people in their community. And uh, we've seen this really brings out like the generosity and care that people really want to participate with each other and and uh, develop those relationships. And uh, I'm curious what you think uh, the value of, of the offers and needs market uh, could be in, in Native communities as far as revealing the, the wealth and, and creating more intimacy um, in, in the people who live there. Yeah, I mean, I think the potential is huge. You know, I. Um, I was watching a documentary some years ago, and one particular line struck me, um, and um, the question was asked of the person who was being interviewed, you know, so what do you do for a living? And there was this long silence, and and the person who was being interviewed said, "Um, I live for a living. And just the beauty and the simplicity of, of that in and of itself um, was really powerful to me because it um, communicated um, 
a re-indigenizing, in, in my view, of um, what it meant to, to be and to live. Um, I think we tend to separate and commodify our, um, our skills in a way um, and assign it a particular value when, when really, you know, our, when we think about traditional tribal communities, um, there were root diggers, there were hunters, there um, were cultural bearers, there, and and there was so much ceremony in um, in doing those everyday things. It wasn't like people had other jobs, right? So their job was, you know, was the was the dwelling builder, was the you know that served different roles over over different seasons. But certainly, there were folks with particular expertise, and what they did was they pieced together all of those skills and, and, and um, expertise and lived in the community where they lived for a living. And um, so I think the part of the beauty is, um, you know, re returning to some of those original instructions with, you know, how we are in community with one another to treat one another, to um, value one another, to, um, to, um, actually view surviving as a, a human right, um, healthcare as a human right, um, and um, having enough food, um, having enough resources to have enough food as a human right. So I think um, the model is particularly powerful in getting us back to some of those original instructions for, you know, why and how we exist with one another in community. Hmm. Yes, yes. And uh, they're right. We're such multifaceted beings. That's what we have people say after the event. They're like, oh, it's so refreshing to be seen in my wholeness instead of pigeonholed into what do you do for a living for 40 hours a week as a secretary? You know, it's so diminishing to not be able to express and and determine our own value. Um, you know, part of the process is, is you determine whether it's um, you're willing to offer it for free as a gift or with barter or whether it's negotiable, you know, so giving people some more flexibility that the market economy doesn't always give. Wow. So I'm uh, curious in the last few minutes here, you know, if people are uh, inspired by, by what they've heard you share, if you could direct us towards uh, any websites or resources that you would suggest. Um, I do have a couple. Um, of course, I think, um, firstly, I, um, you know, if you're MRG Foundation is a fundraising um, foundation. Again, we're a nonprofit um, that focuses on um, giving the power of deciding where where our investments go to activists who are leading movements. Um, so, if that's um, an idea that really catches fire in your belly, um, I would encourage folks to you know go online to mrgfoundation.org and um, and, and give there. We do have um, another plug, um, our annual gala, which is um, Justice Within Reach, um, May 31st, 2019, um, up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and um, it's billed as the Social Justice Party of the Year. So it should be an amazing space um, where um, there'll be lots of, you know, 
celebration and recognition of um, our past work collectively as a, as a community, but then also work we will be doing in community and solidarity with one another. So um, it's a great opportunity for, for community to come together. Um, you know, the other resource that I really love, um, and well, two of them, um, are two, two things that are one uh, happening statewide and one, one that's um, kind of a fun investment tool. And again, these are things that are kind of at odds with one another, um, at least philosophically. So first, um, I just want to mention Hatch Innovations. Um, they are a, um, a in Startup Oregon. So they are for um, primarily entrepreneurs, um, but the Oregon Native American Chamber has um, undertaken kind of oversight of the Startup Oregon platform, um, lots of investment from Hatch, but it's a way to do local investment. Um, Hatch provides ways to do local investment. So if you um, believe in a business, you can, as an individual, invest in that business, either equity or a loan, um, depending upon, you know, your relationship and, and what the um, business owner wants to do. So that's one that's kind of an innovative way to think about um, investing, right? That's not investing in the stock market. It's actually investing um, uh, in a person and in an individual and in an idea. Um, that you want to see come into fruition, you know, somewhere in the state. Um, so a lot of cool businesses that are um, that are listed on their platform. Um, and then um, the Oregon Native American Chamber is an amazing organization that um, is really encouraging folks to really think about, um, and and folks who are Native entrepreneurs think about. Um, ways to um, get involved and envision and why someone um, would even want to be a, um, an entrepreneur and a business owner. So, um, yeah, so those are two. And then um, the last one, okay, so I like, there's one more. Um, uh, a fun thing um, that I use, an app that I use um, to kind of, uh, squirrel away everyday um, money and, and turn them into investments is the Acorns app. So um, that's another one that I just love. And it's a great teaching tool for kids um, who, um, and anyone working an hourly job, it's a way for us to access um, retirement, um, saving for retirement um, and long-term saving um, money market accounts and things like that um, if you um, don't have access to one through your employer. So um, check out Acorns. Fantastic. Thank you. Let's see. So uh, would love to hear closing thoughts from you. If there's a key message you'd like to leave people with or um, anything in particular, uh, perhaps about women or money that you'd like to share. Oh gosh, um, you know I feel lucky that I was um, raised in a family. I think one way that we um, that wealth and power is maintained in the hands of a few, especially, um, is we condition people not to talk about these things. Um, you know, so I just want to um, uplift you and the whole team at Money Wise Women to um, to really talk about these things out in the open. Um, 
because uh, when we do that, I think we, um, you know, dismantle all of those stigmas around not talking about things um, that actually keep us from accessing the tools that we need um, to ensure that our communities have um, have all they need to survive. Um, so I just I just want to uplift that and um, uh, encourage folks to talk about it. It's um, talk about money with your kids. Talk about uh, my. I'm so thankful that my mom did. Um, and that I had a great female role model in my family um, that um, thought it was important to talk to me about money. And um, it's part of the reason that I had so much curiosity in my life about it and um, part of what has led me here to MRG Foundation. Um, so I'm, I'm really open to talking about it and would encourage folks um, not to kind of buy into that stigma of, um, um, and the, the idea that it's taboo to talk about it. So just thanks for the opportunity to talk about it more. Yeah, that's what I uh, so loved about hearing you speak was uh, you said something like, I'm willing to have those difficult conversations and, and talk about taboo subjects. I was like, ooh, I'd love to have her on to talk about money. So thank you for your uh, authentic uh, sharing here today, for the way that you lead, for the change and impact that you have um, already uh, affected in your life. And just uh, love to hear your your passion and articulation of of what is possible, you know, with with more indigenous enterprise and and how we can really shift the culture and the economy to become more just and equitable. And uh, so, thank you again for all the work you do and for sharing your wisdom with us here today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve.